You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1. And while you're doing so, I just want to uh, extend my personal appreciation for those of you that have really just jumped in and uh, gotten involved in helping out with the summer Bible rally preparations. Uh, There is absolutely no way that Brother Nate and I could have done it on our own. And we in our sleep schedules thank you that we have not had to stay up 24-7 for the last week trying to get things together. So everyone who came out last Saturday and got the maps, and even though it rained on us, thank the Lord for the rain. Um, It was just one of those things that we couldn't foresee. I'm just grateful for people's spirits and that we still managed to get pretty much all of them done. I believe every map that was taken has been brought back to me completed, so I really really do want to thank all of you for that. So like I said, tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be beginning in verse number 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So thank you. You may be seated. So first of all, I've always wanted to do this, and it's probably exactly what you're wondering, and that's beating Walmart to Christmas. It gets earlier and earlier every year, and I have held a certain grudge against them for doing that, and I have determined that at least once in my life, I'll beat them to it. Tonight is the night, and it just happened to work out that way. So thank you. But ironically, tonight, I'm actually not going to be dealing with this passage in the typical Christmas spirit sense, um, as we're all familiar with it. Um, and, and in reality, this isn't actually a, um, this is a sermon that uh, I actually heard a long time ago. So it's not necessarily original to me, if I can admit that, but it certainly presented a, a principle that has been transformative for me, really. And, and I was thinking about it just recently, and I, I genuinely thought that it would, be, uh, it would just be good to share. So what I want to present with you tonight is a thought about the man within these accounts whom we know as, as Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And if you have any tendencies that resemble mine anytime you're reading through the Bible and you get to the Gospels, when you read the first bits of them, particularly Matthew and Luke, they're the Christmas accounts. And, and sometimes you can just tend to glaze over those because if you're like my family, you sit down every Christmas and you read at least one. So it's, it's, it's kind of familiar to you and, and so you just go through the stories. Um, and we direct our focus primarily on the, on the historical aspect of the account itself and spend most of our attention with Christ's incarnation as, as the center picture, which is, which is good and right. And, and we give place to all other elements of his, his virgin birth and, and the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and, and all with that. But, but when it comes to Joseph, I think, outside of acknowledging his presence, when we really read the passages, there isn't much that we know about him. And, and thus he's almost pushed to the sides, at least in our mind, as this as, as a major player, but still a side character, and, and not someone that we give a whole lot of consideration to. 
So, so rather than, than do what's typical tonight and, and look at the picture as a whole, uh, I'd like to invite you to join me as we look a bit closer at, at Joseph, this, this man who plays the often overlooked role as, as a husband and a father, and as the man who is intentionally chosen to be given the incredible responsibility of raising up the Lord Jesus Christ as his own son. The book of Luke gives a great de deal of attention on, on Mary and her interactions with, with the angel and with her cousin Elizabeth. But here in Matthew 1, in, in the verses that we read, it seems to focus almost exclusively on Joseph's short experiences concerning the birth of Christ. So, so the question then becomes, what is it that we're supposed to learn from, the, from these details? What was the Holy Spirit intending here when he inspired Matthew to, to record these things? So for the next little while, let's all put the, the Christmas story aside for, for a minute. And separate yourselves from the familiarity of it, uh, from, the, from the nativity scene and from all that comes with it to, to look at our passage in a different light. I encourage you not to view this as simply events that lead up to Christ's birth, but, but try to imagine as we read um, the exact situation that Joseph is in here and, and kind of put yourself in his position and, and allow the events of the story to unfold as they come to you. And, and what we're going to glean from this is, is that the decision he would make would ultimately make way for the very Son of God to abide with man upon the earth. So in verse number 18, we see that Joseph is faced with a difficult decision from a situation that's not his own doing. Well, is the situation? Let's, let's read it again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says they were espoused. Now, now in Jewish culture, espousal works a little differently than, than engagement practices do here in, in Western culture. Um, engagements over here um, are, are, are something that we do. We, we propose and we ask, will you marry me? And then she says, I do. And then everything's all happy and butterflies. But it's not necessarily legally binding. Like, that, that's something, I don't mean to treat it pessimistically, but you could break off an engagement at any time. No party is obligated to remain in an engagement just because they said yes. That's the way that it works. So, so an espousal in this day was, was essentially a binding legal contract uh, that recognized a man and a woman as husband and wife in the eyes of the law, but however, they had not formally wed or, or consummated their marriage following a wedding, and thus they, they didn't live together, and that, that was the case here with Mary and Joseph. So, so in a lot of cases, their parents considered them married, the culture considered them married, and the law considered them married. They were just not married in practice. That was how this worked. So to nullify the espousal, what, what, what they instituted back in the Mosaic Law was you had to issue a bill of divorcement, and it had to be formally, formally issued and presented to the bride. And, and additionally, there's other legal uh, repercussions in, in Jewish law that required punishment for those who were unfaithful or guilty of fornication. And that's kind of the, the situation that we potentially find ourselves in here if we're in Joseph's position. Mary's found to be with child. And we know by our, both our text in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1 that Mary was with child of the Holy Ghost by supernatural conception. The Bible says so. Jesus Christ, you know, alludes to the fact that he came from God. I mean, this is this not an indisputable fact, but if we're in Joseph's position, Joseph doesn't know this. Luke 1, as a parallel passage, gives us a couple more details uh, regarding Mary's pregnancy and overall uh, side of the story as she had conceived and, and proceeded to spend three months with her cousin Elizabeth, who we know to be the mother of John the Baptist. 
And after those three months together, the Bible tells us Mary returns to her own house with, with her own family. And for that entire period of time and beyond, what Mary did not have was exposure to her espoused husband. It, it just wasn't possible during this period of time. So let's flip back to Joseph. From Joseph's perspective then, his wife-to-be is mysteriously found to be with child. She comes back from being with her cousin and she's three months pregnant. And from the moment of her conception to the ending of what we cons would consider nowadays the end of the first trimester, uh, Joseph has seen neither hide nor hair of his wife. When she returned, I would gather to say it's possible and very likely that Mary did inform Joseph of the events that transpired concerning, you know, her talk with the angel and everything that happened since then and gave him the context of, of what had happened. And while Joseph, on one hand, sure, he may have been inclined to believe Mary, at the point of her return an undeniable fact of being with child, the only information that Joseph tangibly had to work with here at this moment is that verse 19, at verse 19, when he's, when he's confronted with this decision to make, is Mary's word alone, according to the implications of our text. What the fact remains is that at that point, what was understood to be certain was that Mary was pregnant out of wedlock with a child that did not belong to her spouse's husband. It didn't belong to Joseph. They hadn't seen each other. So suspicions of fornication, regardless of whether they were from him, whether it was from family, or whether it was from the community, those, those very likely would have arisen very quickly from these circumstances. And what Joseph faced here was a decision that would not only decide the fate of his wife, but the very fate of the child Jesus Christ. So mind what I mentioned earlier, if, if any problems arose during an espousal for any reason, what the standard procedure was in this day was that the, the man drafts a bill of divorcement, presents it to the bride before witnesses, and, and he puts her away, as, as the Bible puts it. The decision Joseph faced under these circumstances of, of possible fornication, though, presents far more serious consequences than her just being put away. Um, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, I think it's verses 23 and 24, what the Mosaic law commands for for men and women who are caught in fornication is that they're to be taken out of the city and, and stoned. They're to be put to death. Fornicate, God treats the, the purity of marriage very seriously, and so not respecting that had very serious consequences. And that was still practiced in this day. So even thousands of years later, the, the Jewish culture still practiced that to this day. And we can find that from the passage in John 8, because the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus himself. And they say, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act she needs to be stoned. What say you? And they were testing Jesus. So we know that this was practiced still at this time. So this was a very serious decision that Joseph has to make here. Um, not only Mary's life, but a child's life hung in the balance of Joseph's measures that he would decide to take on the matter. So what were Joseph's options to consider? You know, what kind of choices was he faced in the light of these circumstances? Well, the first thing that we need to observe here is Joseph's response was shaped based on his own understanding of the situation. But in turn, his understanding ultimately is going to hinge on the response he chooses to make. On one hand, Joseph honestly could have allowed his emotions to guide his response here. To Joseph's level of understanding in, in verses 18 and 19, it's, it's reasonable for him to conclude that the evidence points to her being unfaithful. Name the last person who came up to you and told them that the Holy Spirit made them pregnant. It just, that, that never happened. I mean, as far as he can tell, that was the situation. It, this isn't a situation either that Joseph chose or caused, and I want us to bear that in mind. So, so it would have been very, very natural for him in these circumstances to be very, very emotionally affected by this. You know, there, there's likely a lot of feelings that he struggled with here as, as he faced a variety of, of, of doubt and, and suspicion, uh, perhaps betrayal and, and hurt. 
and anger and, and a whole mess of others that and I'm sure during this whole time was pulling his mind in a lot of different directions here. And it was well within Joseph's right even to make this decision based on the emotional turmoil it caused him, which would have led Mary to being subject to law. I mean, it was his right. Anyone, and not just Joseph, who could find themselves in such a situation, it, it would probably struggle with these feelings as well. And, and the desire to have, have emotional vindication, to, to have the wrong against them righted because they were treated unjustly. And the text does say that he was minded to handle the matter privately. But th this isn't so much for, for Mary's sake. What it says is this is more motivated by Joseph being a just man. And, and I would say this is because Joseph, being a just man, valued life. You know, thus leading him to consider the course of action that, that would not only spare Mary, for instance, but in this case, the child. I would say that it would be mostly out of his consideration for the life of an innocent child. Yeah. So on the other hand, outside of responding emotionally, what, what was the other option? Well, Joseph could recognize here that emotions in regards to a situation do not equal understanding in regards to a situation. So in spite of how he may have felt... I think what happened here and what we see here is that Joseph recognized the dangers that come with making hasty decisions based on how we feel. Two lives hung in the balance of the way he would choose to respond. So in spite of the hurt that he may have felt and the desire to seek that emotional justification that he likely faced, what we see in verse number 20 is that Joseph shows godly discernment when it says at the very beginning, look at the verse with me, but while he thought on these things... It says he decided to think on these things. He was presented with information and he stopped and he thought about it. We don't know how long he waited to make a decision. We don't know how long he was forced to sit and think about it. I'm not entirely sure that's important, but, but, the, but the bottom line is he didn't draw a hasty decision. What he did was prayerfully consider all the details while recognizing that there were likely elements to the situation that he didn't see in the long term. And what we see happens after this is that God gives Joseph... The understanding that he lacked because he responded with discernment instead of justification. See, God reveals to Joseph the details that he lacked when Joseph decided to take a step back from the, from the things that were happening around him. And instead of choosing to respond emotionally, rather, he thoughtfully considers the situation before him. And, and, and he doesn't cast judgment based on his feelings in the moment. And now because Joseph realized that he lacked the necessary understanding to, to decide the fate of Mary and this child, what God does is God eventually shows him the part that he's able to play in its entirety, and the part that he's able to play in the coming of the Savior, and the part that he's able to play in being the earthly father of Jesus Christ. All of this is made known to him in due time. So sure, Joseph may not have understood in that moment how God intended to use the situation that Joseph perceived, that he could have perceived to be a wrong against him. But by looking beyond the personal injury, and by looking beyond the personal hurt, what we, find, and what we find is that he forsook the desire for emotional vindication, and he yielded himself to using godly discernment, and that allowed him to see how God intended to use that situation for his glorious purposes. Amen. And let's think about it the other way. Had Joseph chosen to act without wisdom, it may or may not have affected the outcome of Christ being born on this earth. Because, um, you know, we have to weigh in the balance, you know, the free will of man versus the sovereignty of God. I do believe that God promised that Jesus Christ would come. Jesus Christ would have come. He would have. But Joseph would have forsaken his part in being involved in that. He would have unknowingly forfeited his position and involvement. And not only the joy it would have been to be the earthly father of Jesus Christ, but he could have greatly interfered with God's greatest goal, which was the cross. 
So regardless of whether the understanding came immediately, or even if Joseph never completely understood until he passed to the other side of heaven, either way, what we find is that God was faithful in completing Joseph's understanding in time. So in Joseph's life, what we find is that there's undeniable value to choosing understanding over justification. So how does this carry over for us today? Well, Christians today... I think all of us would agree we're inevitably going to find ourselves in in situations beyond our control where it seems as though we've been treated unfairly. It happens. That's part of life. We live in a society even where when wronged, the the not only popular response but often glorified response by by the the media and and by the society culture as a whole is to embrace the emotion in spite of understanding and choose to seek that emotional vindication. The tendency is so prevalent that, that it affects everybody, and that, that's regardless of, of position in society, position in the financial structure, or, or anything. I mean, it affects everyone. It's pervasive. I mean, just think back to this last year. This was a crazy year politically. We've seen people respond to social injustices, and they, and they took to the streets, and they rioted, and they destroyed people's businesses and their livelihood, um, and, and demanded that society fix these injustices that were done. And then adversely, we even saw the other side respond to, to storming, storming the national capital. I mean, if I'm going to look at it from both sides, that we, they, they uh, stormed the capital and they injured people, committed violence and, as, as they too felt that they had been wronged and deserved some sort of justification. It's, it seeps so much into American thinking that the emotional response is favored, even in the smallest of details, like crazy customers at retail stores. Yeah. I'm serious. I mean, I... I had the privilege, I say privilege, I had the opportunity to work at Dillard's this last year, which is a, it's, I don't really know how to necessarily describe it. If you have Macy's, then there's kind of Dillard's, and then you have whatever's way up here for retail that no one in here probably shops at. But it's, it's nice, it's a nice store, but the people in there are absolutely self-entitled. And I worked in customer service, so I naturally wasn't just dealing with people as a whole, I was dealing with the people with problems. And every time I told them that the problem was not within our policy nor within our obligation to fix, they took that as a personal injustice. (laughs) And I constantly found myself in situations where I was trying to diffuse a situation where this person was responding with the emotions equivalent to me killing their dog right in front of them. I mean, it's this, but as ridiculous as that sounds, I mean, that's how pervasive this mindset of, of emotional response is. It's not rational, but people do it all the time. And so sufficiently, I think what it's safe to say here is that in situations where we've been wrong, society says that emotional justification is the answer to reaching a solution. Be offended. Speak out. And secure your own vindication by proclaiming to the world that you have been wronged and that you are a victim of injustice and that you must have things made right at this very moment or else there will be consequences. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the world we live in today. And Christians are prone to the exact same temptation. Not only because we live in that culture, but because we're sinful human beings. When we find ourselves in a situation beyond our control, we can be tempted to respond in one of two ways ourselves. We can seek emotional vindication against people. You know, we, we have a lot of personal connections within this room and outside of this room where, where if people offend us, I mean, it hurts. People that we love and trust, they, they betray us sometimes. They, they stab us in the back, and, and rumors will spread around about you by the hands of people that you trust. And, and changes can come that totally blindside us and make us feel as though our, our opinion or, or, or that our investments aren't being respected. And I mean, that can turn us off to people. Yeah. 
And we live, we live in a sinful culture too. So even outside of a church family, um, you may have experienced hurt in the past because of a sinful world in which we live, whether that's you know, through trauma or from people that fail to, to see things from your perspective and they, they actively go against you to, to belittle you and discredit you and make you feel dumb. I mean, that's the world in which we live. And, and, and as a result of that, what we can be prone to do is shut ourselves off from people because we're absolutely disgusted with how people in the world today live. I mean, that's, a, that's something that we're prone to do. And on top of that, not only can we seek emotional vindication from people, we can even be tempted to seek emotional vindication from God. Yeah, true. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know that we're often conscious of this fact, but a lot, we have a lot of expectations that we hold of God that he's not obligated to meet. And then a lot of times we set ourselves up for disappointment whenever God doesn't meet the expectations that we set for ourselves. You know, God may be letting you go through something right now that you don't really feel like you deserve. And God, God may not, you may not feel like God's rewarding the work that you're putting into something. And you think, man, I've invested time and I've invested money and I've invested tears and emotions and, and thought and strength and, and just energy all into, all into whatever it may be, whether that's people or projects or ministries or whatever. And you may think, I've got nothing to show for it, God. You, you, you're wronging me here. You could be struggling with loneliness. You know, right now you could be waiting on God to bring someone your way because, because it's a struggle going through life on your own. And it's hard. And it's tough. And you, you're doing everything that you know in your power to do to wait on God and to follow his word and to be involved and wait on his timing. But when it seems like nothing's happening, you may be tempted to think, man, God, you're really not pulling through for me. Like, what's going on? You can be hurt. You can feel like you can be hurt. And we may be tempted to hold God responsible for the conditions that bring us physical pain. You know, we can, we can ask God, why would you allow this to happen? We can question God on how, how, how could it possibly work for your benefit if you render me with this sickness or this disease or this ailment and, and I can't do anything to serve you like I had hoped and dreamed I could. And we can hold that against him. We can question what God is doing when he allows us to watch the hardships and pains of those that we love. And in some ways, I think that's even harder. We can think that God's being unfair because we're watching the people that we love go through the struggle of their life and we think, God, you're not being fair. You know that I would give anything to trade positions with them. Why are you making me sit here and watch this? I can't even do anything. Yeah. And in the midst of all those decisions that can stir us up inside emotionally, they can flare us up and they can get us all worked up and we can be thinking, man, I want things to be made right right now. What we ought to remember is that God's plan often extends beyond our current understanding. And if we choose to demand that our perceived wrong against us be made right, based on our feelings in any given moment, what we risk hindering are situations that God has allowed and that he intended to use to ultimately achieve his good. When we choose to put our emotions in their place and, and stop to think and, and to pray, our use of godly discernment puts us in the proper position for God to reveal his intentions in due time. Had, had Joseph let his emotions rule his response, what he risked missing out on was all that God had in store for him to be a part of. Because he chose rather to stop and think, what God gave Joseph was the understanding that he lacked, and then he also equipped him to fulfill his role in accomplishing the purpose that came with Jesus Christ coming to earth. And so tonight, there, there's probably people in this room that are in the middle of situations that are completely beyond your control. You didn't ask for it. You, didn't, you certainly wouldn't have chosen it. You hurt and, and you're confused, and you have, you have absolutely no idea how to handle the circumstances that are set before you now. And what it seems as though is that the people you care about, or even God himself, has wronged you. And you struggle with that. 
maybe even on a daily basis. And, and I'm not up here condemning the feelings that come from having to endure such circumstances. That, that's part of being human. I, I can't condemn that. I, I experience that myself. But what I urge you to do tonight is recognize this. God ultimately has a plan to work things out for his good and for his glory. We are the ones who choose whether or not we have a part in that. When in situations that we don't understand, what we have to recognize is that our understanding is far, far beneath what God has. And there's likely things at play that we can't see. You know, it's easy to fall into the temptation to seek emotional justification, especially in a culture that places such a high value on it. But I urge you to keep in mind that, generally speaking, you only get one. You get to pick. Now, God lets you pick. You can choose emotional justification, and you can get it. But I can almost guarantee you that you'll lack the understanding that, can, that comes with it in the future. And you can have the gratification of being emotionally justified in the moment, but you'll miss out on understanding. Or... And, and, and on top of that even, not only will you miss the understanding, you could, you could miss your, your part in being involved in something so much greater that God could have intended for you to have. That's, that's, that's a consequence of choosing emotional justification. You can pick it, and God will let you have it. Or, on the other hand, what we can do is that we can choose to stop and think carefully about our response. We can choose to remember that there's a God in heaven that sees everything at play that we can't see from our finite perspective but what we can choose to remember is that he intends to work his best. And all that we have to do, as the people in these situations and as the people living through the difficult circumstances in life, is that he intends to work his best and that he'll provide us not only with the understanding that we lack, but maybe even the opportunity to play a central role in how God intended to use the circumstances in the first place in order to accomplish his purposes. We may never find ourselves in Joseph's position where we're making a difficult decision that the very birth of Jesus Christ hinges upon. That's unlikely to happen ever again. But, I mean, in reality, that kind of sets, sets the tone that the sky's the limit for what God can do with the circumstances that he allows in your life. And when you find yourself struggling with the desire to put your foot down and demand that the wrongs against you be made right, I urge you to stop, 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 and think about it for a moment. Let the emotions fizzle out for a second and, and, and think about it rationally and pray about it and give the details to God and give thoughtful prayer to each and every situation every day, no matter how long that takes. And you may feel strongly pulled in the direction of justification, but trust God. And what's going to happen is you'll find that he gives you the understanding that you'll need in his due time. And he'll allow you to have a part in something so much greater than you ever imagined. Amen. Let's pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.